Well, we're going to be in the Gospel of John tonight, so please open your Bibles to the book of John. Let's pray to open our time in the Word this evening. Lord, thank you for the fact that we get to sing to you and, the, and the, the songs that we sing and the depth and the richness of it, Lord, it, it barely scratches the surface of being able to magnify you rightly for your glory and your majesty. Thank you, Lord, for the fact that you would stoop to love us, to care for us, to the point of sending your most beloved son for us to die for our sins. We are grateful beyond what we can even express. Lord, we just pray that we would live lives that are pleasing to you. Lord, help us to see where our worship of you is lacking and it's empty in certain times. We, we, we do not want that. We pray, Lord, that we would have soft hearts to you, that you would transform us all the more into the image of Christ each day so that we would honor you in a greater way. Lord, be with us this evening as we study your word. Let it fall on on soft hearts and, and ears to hear. We pray, Lord, that we would consider the, the power and majesty of our Savior. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. And tonight I wanted to walk you through one of my favorite accounts in the life of Jesus found in the Gospel of John, and that is in John chapter 2. Uh, next Sunday evening, Lord willing, I, I wanted to walk you through the account of the woman at the well in John 4. And there's a, a running, three, uh, running theme through both of these passages that we're going to look at, and that is the matter of worship. Many in the world claim to be worshipers of the Lord today, and many today claim the name of Jesus. But is their worship genuine? And, and more importantly, is their worship pleasing to the Lord? Are they worshiping in the way that he has prescribed? And today, emotionally charged passion is often the measure of true worship in churches. On the other side, you have you know, feelings of sobriety and, and devotion to the Lord in that more high church sort of context. And that is how they gauge their level of worship. But is that how God sees it? And in the end, that's really all that matters, isn't it? It's how God sees it. So in this account in John 2, we're going to see just how committed Jesus is to a pure worship of the Lord. And we're also going to see how that pure worship centers around him. So let's dive into this staggering account in the life of our Lord. We're going to be reading John 2, verses 12 through 22. Follow along as I read John 12, beginning in verse 12. John 2, excuse me, beginning in verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you, will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now, this account occurs at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist had already come. He had been paving the way for his coming. He had also begun choosing his disciples in chapter 1. In the beginning of chapter 2, we have the record of the first miracle that Jesus performed when he 
turned water into wine at a wedding in Cana. Verse 11 says that this was the beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested or revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So you have that account happening. Then you have verse 12. He goes back to Capernaum, he and his mothers and his brothers and his disciples, and they stay there just for a, sh a short time, just for a few days. Joseph is most likely dead and gone at this point. And so Jesus, being the firstborn, is the head of the home. And he brings the family and his disciples up to Capernaum from Nazareth. Now, this might have been a permanent move. Capernaum would become the center of Jesus's ministry activities for the next three years. It was right on the Sea of Galilee. But around that time, there was an event that was about to take place that Jesus wanted to make sure that he would be at. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And before we take a look at that, let me just give you a little bit of the broader context of the Gospel of John because it's going to help us to understand this in a better way. Back in verse 11, notice that John mentioned signs, this beginning of his signs. So turning water into wine was the first of seven signs that John records in this Gospel. And this is deliberate on the part of the apostle here. John has a reason for why he records these signs of Jesus. The purpose of the gospel of John is, is found in chapter 20, verse 30. And after nearly finishing his gospel, John says this. He said, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John's purpose of writing this gospel is so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that, and that by believing in him, you would have eternal life in his name. The gospel of John is just, just the apostle laying out his case as to why you should believe that Jesus is the Christ. This is why signs are very prevalent in John's gospel, because signs point to something, don't they? Or to someone. John also strongly emphasizes the idea of belief. You have a, a real belief, a genuine belief versus a false belief. And he brings many different groups of people and individuals together, and he contrasts a true belief and a false belief. John also brings many witnesses into this gospel who will confess the truth about who Jesus is. This is what the apostle is concerned about. Here is Jesus, and here is irrefutable evidence that he is the Messiah. And this account in John 2, it provides a staggering proof of this very fact, that Jesus is the Christ. I want to show this to you. So we're going to find two themes in, uh, these pa in this passage here. So there's an immediate theme of having a pure worship of the Lord, but Wrapped in that is the broader theme of the fact that Jesus is who he said he is. And in verses 13 to 22, the Apostle John is going to give two staggering proofs that Jesus is the Messiah. And the first is found in verses 13 to 17. And that is the prophesied suffering of Jesus. Let's take a look again at verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The Passover was one of the most important events in Jerusalem. This was the day when the Jews would celebrate the Exodus, when the Lord delivered his people from their bondage in Egypt. And every year, many of the Jews would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. The Passover was the first day of a festival that would last eight days and would end with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Many Jews would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Every male Jew, 12 years and older, was required to come and celebrate. Uh, Luke 2.32, you remember that? When, when Jesus was 12 years old, his parents brought him to Jerusalem and then they forgot him. Whoops. But, but 12, years old, 12 years old was required that the boys would come. And, and estimates of the numbers of the people who would come for the Passover were pretty staggering. Estimates range from upward of 1 million to as many as 4 million people would gather in Jerusalem for the Passover. That is a lot of people in one city. 
It, it is packed to the gills. So picture in your mind Jesus going to the Passover, but not, not a small little sparse crowd, a massive crowd. The Jews had celebrated the Passover for around 1,400 years at this point, going all the way back to Moses. This was a very normal occurrence in the life of the people of Israel. During the Passover, the Jews would celebrate the event by sacrificing an unblemished lamb, hearkening back to the original Exodus. And many animals would be sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins. This was going to be, however, a very unique Passover. When you read the Gospel of John, you, you get the sense of there's, there's so much irony in the accounts that John chooses to record. I, I love it. But this passage might be one of the greatest of ironies because as the Jews are celebrating the Passover by sacrificing animals, right, the lamb, the one that John the Baptist had called the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he is going to be in Jerusalem for this Passover. It's a staggering thought. Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. We, we don't tend to put enough weight on that. The son of God himself is headed to Jerusalem into the city of David. And he's going to go into the temple, into his father's house. Think about the significance of God himself entering into the place where he is worshiped. And the most mind boggling part of all of that is nobody but a select few even know who he is. And even, even the ones that do have an inkling of who he is, they don't grasp the full significance of what he's about to do or who he even is yet. As Jesus enters Jerusalem with his disciples, he, he begins the trek toward the temple. Now, now this temple was not Solomon's temple. This was the second temple built under Nehemiah and was under actually an, an expansion project by King Herod. Um, Herod did not love the Lord, but he loved himself a lot. So he wanted to make this edifice massive and impressive. The Temple Mount itself was a huge complex. It was built on the highest point of the city on a massive raised foundation. So it looked like a big plateau. On top of the plateau was the temple complex. And the temple complex was just a big square, about 35 acres. On the outer ring of the square, there was a wall and there was eight different gates on, by which people could enter into the temple mount. And as you entered into one of those gates, the first place you would come into is the court of the Gentiles. Now, any non-Jews could have access to that area. If you were a Jew, then you would be allowed access into the center group of structures on the Temple Mount. This area took up about two and a half football fields. This is where the, the court of women was. This is where the actual temple was, the structure uh, where, where the altar was and the holy place and the holy of holies behind the veil. When Jesus first enters into the temple area, he is in that first area, the, the court of the Gentiles. And this is what he sees when he walks in. Look at verse 14. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. The son of God is walking into the temple expecting to celebrate the Passover with his chosen people, desiring to worship the father and instead, what does he find? He finds circus. Oxen, sheep, doves, people changing money. Let's remember, this is his father's house. This is the place of worship in all the world. This would be like coming to church on Sunday morning and there's a bunch of livestock and people doing business out in the foyer. The distractions would have been off the charts. It's difficult to settle your mind and, and your focus on the Lord when there's cows and sheep and doves, you know, making all their noises and there's deals being done. I mean, how do you worship in that way? Let me add this, though. The, the fact that there were sheep and doves and oxen at the temple was not the issue. I should say in that area, the, the sacrifices that had been prescribed by God required animals and required a lot of them. And, and people would come from many miles away to make a sacrifice in Jerusalem. So bringing livestock with you was often just not feasible. And even the presence of the money changers was not necessarily an issue. God had said in Exodus 30, 13, that annually every male 20 years and older had to pay a half shekel to, a, to the contribution of the temple to the Lord. And that half shekel had to be in silver. 
and it had to be in the right coinage, so they wouldn't accept Roman or Greek coinage. So the money changers and the animals that were there were useful, and you could even say needed. Their presence was not the problem. The problem was their location. Instead of having stalls of animals set up, you know, way outside the temple and, and doing business outside of there, they had them right in the temple mount. You know, think about the crowds that were coming up to try to worship. There, there, there's, it's a massive area, but there's still some limited space. You would have to get around animals and tables of money changers. Now, how many people would have been able to get in? Maybe some would not have been able to get in because of all of this going on. There is most likely one other problem as well. If there's one thing that we know that transcends every age, it's that we have to pay a little extra for uh, convenience. And if you were coming to the temple to offer sacrifice and pay your tax, what could be more convenient than doing it all right there in the temple mount? Now, of course, you'd have to pay and, and you know, pay maybe a little, little bit extra for that convenience. One commentator said that the money changers charge around 12.5% for their services. And, and when you consider the amount of people that would have been there for the Passover, these guys are making a lot of money in a very short amount of time. Also, you have to believe that those in charge of the temple, the religious leaders, they were doing quite well for themselves on all of this business being done. You know that they didn't allow these merchants there for free. It goes without saying that this was never the intent that the Lord had for the temple, not even close. It was to be a place of worship, not a place of business, as verse 16 says. And this is, this is what Jesus encounters as he enters into the temple. Now, amazingly, even that, though, even, even the very act of Jesus walking into the temple was a fulfillment of prophecy. It was not maybe a full fulfillment. Uh, that will happen at his second coming. But what we do have here is our first echo of the fulfillment of Malachi 3.1. Keep your finger in John 2. Look over at Malachi 3.1, the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi 3.1. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. That, that is a reference to John the Baptist, right? The voice of the one crying in the wilderness. And the Lord, whom you seek, will come, suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Maybe not fully in its fullest sense, but, but Jesus fulfilled this prophecy the second he walked into the temple on that day. This is, this is an incredibly significant event. But Malachi also gives us a glimpse of coming attractions by what he says in verse 2. <laughs> but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. That's what our Lord is concerned about, that the people would offer sacrifice to him in righteousness. He wants a pure worship amongst his people. And he himself is the one who will refine and purify his people. Turn back over to John 2. So this should have been a glorious event, right? Prophecy fulfilled. The long-awaited Messiah had finally come to his people. And, and he's coming into the temple. And instead of that, you find worldliness. And when Jesus sees what his people had done to his father's house, he is incensed with a righteous anger. Verse 15. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. So Jesus walks into the temple. It's probably just, oh, what is this? Starts walking around and picking up loose ropes on the ground, from, probably from the animals that were there. And he starts fashioning a little whip, a little scourge. And he is about to completely upend this place. 
And so picture this scene, right? The temple is just packed out with people. Business is going on as usual like it had every other Passover. And one man, one man makes a whip and he starts to drive every animal, every merchant, every money changer, all of them out of the temple. This is righteous anger on the part of our master. And the chaos must have been unbelievable. Animals running out of the temple through every gate and out every exit, running down past the people who were coming up the stairs to come in. Merchants and money changers running out as fast as they can to avoid this crazed man. Jesus is cleaning them out and he's also throwing out all the coins and turning over their tables in the meantime. This is, this is quite a scene. The people that were there must have been absolutely shocked. And you, you have to believe that some may have tried to resist him. Or maybe they were just completely terrified by such an overwhelming display of power and authority. You know, maybe terror gripped them. Or maybe when they heard the words of Jesus, they were struck with conviction. Right? This is the Son of God, after all. We don't know what's going on in their hearts, and, and we don't know who may have tried to stop him if they did at all. But one thing is for sure, no one could contain the Son of God. No one could stop him. Malachi 3.2, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? This was divine authority. This was divine power in their midst. No one could adore him. No one could stand his righteous wrath. God's people were supposed to be offering gifts and righteousness that day. This should have pierced their hearts. <laughs> What's amazing about this is the fact that Jesus maintained perfect self-control as he was doing all of this. Uh, self-control is fruit of the Spirit, right? So it's hard for us to even understand how this could be, but it does tell us that self-control and righteous anger can coexist. But let's be honest, it'd be difficult for us to make those two go together. But for the Son of God, that's what happened. His was a controlled wrath. His was a zeal that was contained, but it was hot with fire. Jesus was completely consumed with the vindication of the name of his Father and the right worship of him in his house. Verse 15 says that he drove them all out of the temple. All of them. You know, sometimes I think we get the idea of, of Jesus as being kind of soft, being a little bit effeminate sometimes. He's called the lamb, right? And he told the people to come to him because he is gentle and humble at heart. And of course he is. And, and sometimes we think of Jesus as being kind of a, you know, a soft man. You know, we must eject thoughts like this from our mind. Yeah, Jesus is indeed gentle. He is a lamb. He is humble. He showed compassion for the people, but he is also a lion. He is coming one day as a conquering king. He is coming as judge one day to judge the world. Jesus was anything but weak and passive. And this account shows us just how formidable of a man he was. Verse 15, Jesus cleans out the big animals and the money changers. Verse 16 shows that then he started evicting those who were selling the doves. And this is what he was saying as he was doing this. He said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. This word here for place of business is the same word that we get our word for emporium. The temple, which was supposed to have been a place of worship, had become a mall. And Jesus was having none of it. By the way, this is, this is somewhat debated, but, but this is most likely not the only time he cleaned out the temple. Uh, the other gospel is recording another cleansing of the temple uh, at the end of his ministry. So it could be that he comes into the temple the first time and cleans it out as, as, a, as a way to inaugurate his ministry, as a way to convict the hearts of the people. But then the second and final cleansing may have marked the end of his ministry is a sign of judgment to them. It appears at this time, though, that the, the worldly and distracted nature of the external worship that was going on in the temple was just a reflection of the worldly and distracted worship that was going on in the hearts of the people. 
We know this for sure that that was the case for the religious leaders, right? And, and as go the leaders, so go the people. One commentator named Lenski said this about Jesus cleaning the temple. He said, no halfway measures, no gradual and gentle correction will do in a, manner, in a matter as flagrant as this. There was no buildup. Jesus just went after them and cleaned it out. This passionate zeal of Jesus shows us that God desires his people to worship him in an undistracted and a pure manner. Now, what if Jesus were to enter into many of the churches in America today, right? Would he start turning over tables? And there'd be coffee everywhere. <laughs> the real issue of worship is a matter of the heart. It always has been and it always will be. Are we going to worship the Lord on his terms as he is prescribed? Or are we going to worship him on our terms? The Jews had created their own method of worship. And I think, I think it's good for us in these times to, to check our own hearts, right? How do we view worship? When we come on Sunday morning, when we go about our week, what is going on in our heart? Are we guarding our heart with all diligence? Are, are we striving to cultivate humility and purity in our heart? Or does our heart need to be like the temple, right? Completely ransacked. Is it... Is our heart distracted by worldly desires? Is sin clogging our hearts from having a pure worship of our creator? Jesus showed a righteous indignation and a hatred of sin and corruption when he cleaned out the temple. This is the same righteous indignation that we should have for our sin. We should be ruthless with our sin. We are commanded to hate what is evil and cling with what is to what is good. I mean, we need to ask sometimes, do, do we sometimes need to turn over tables in our own heart? Back to John 2. While Jesus was busy cleaning out the riffraff, his disciples were watching all of it. Now, think about the disciples, right? They had gone to the temple their whole lives. This wasn't their first Passover. And so can you imagine walking up with Jesus and all of a sudden you... You start watching him clean everything out. They must have been standing there with their, with their mouths wide open. What was running through their minds, though, as they were watching this? Well, the disciples thought of Scripture. Verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. What Jesus had done in the temple that day had never been done before. It had never even been attempted before. But when Jesus did it, the disciples thought of truth. And it is interesting that they thought of this truth. Zeal for your house will consume me. And I used to think that this verse meant that Jesus was just completely overwhelmed by righteous anger, right? He was consumed with zeal. And of course, Jesus was exceedingly zealous that the name of the Father was honored, of course. But I think there's another thing that the disciples had in mind when they thought of this verse. This reference here in verse 17 is, is a quote of uh, Psalm 69.9. That was written by David, King David, of course, right? David also had a, a righteous zeal for a pure worship of the Lord. But when you, go and when you go and read Psalm 69 and you read it in its context, you realize, wait a minute, that zeal had a consequence. A righteous zeal like that is like a flashing blue light for all of the God-haters in the world to start attacking you. John doesn't record the second part of Psalm 69.9. Let me read that to you. Zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Listen to the previous verse, Psalm 69, 8. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. Verse 11, I have become a byword to them. Verse 12, I am the song of drunkards. The word for consumed in, in Psalm 69, 9 and also the one here in John 2, 17 is the word for devoured or for uh, eaten up. So what David is saying in Psalm 69.9 is that the, the zeal that he had for the house of the Lord had caused his enemies to attack him, to devour him, to eat him up. 
In Psalm 69, David's passionate desire to defend the Lord and the purity of his house was met with persecution, opposition, and eventually alienation from the world and even from his own family. And just like King David, the greater David had a zeal for his father's house. And, and Jesus' zeal was even stronger than David's because this truly was his father's house. And the exact same thing that happened to King David is, is going to happen to the greater David. There's one notable difference between Psalm 69.9 and John 2.17. In Psalm 69.9, the verb is in the past tense. Zeal for your house has consumed me. But here in John 2.17, there's been a change. The, the verb is future. Zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is going to, to experience the wrath of his enemies because of his zeal for his father's house, just like David did, but to an even greater degree. Because unlike David, Jesus' humility and his zeal will drive him to his death. So are you seeing how the cleansing of the temple and the zeal that Jesus had for his father's house, that is even a fulfillment of prophecy. What Jesus did in the temple proved that he is indeed the greater David because the zeal that he showed for his father's house echoed the zeal that King David had previous to him. And this is also a foreshadowing that the greater David will experience opposition and persecution at the hands of his enemies just like King David had 900 years prior. A righteous zeal of the Lord will always be met with opposition. We must know this. We may not experience the same level of persecution that, that David did or Jesus did, right? But, but if we desire to worship the Lord in purity and call others to do the same, we will be persecuted. If they hated him, they're going to hate us too. Most often, the, the greatest opposition to that sort of zeal comes from the religious, doesn't it? Those who have that, that superficial veneer of religion are the first ones to come out of the woodwork and attack the true believer in Jesus who wants to maintain purity in their lives. They do this because, what does it do, right? It shines a big spotlight on their own hypocrisy. Religious hypocrites hate exposure and they hate conviction because in their heart they don't really desire to honor the Lord. They just want their conscience salved or, or they want to be seen as righteous. So it shouldn't surprise us when we are attacked and attacked by the, re the religious. We're going to be called narrow and naive. We're going to be called unloving and legalistic. But we must know that they attack the Lord in the same way. Zeal for the truth will always be met by opposition. But the zeal that our Lord had was one proof that he is who he said he was. He is the prophesied Messiah. That brings us to verse 18. That's our... Our second proof that Jesus is the Messiah, and that is the prophesied resurrection of Jesus. Prophesied suffering and prophesied resurrection. Verse 18. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? This reference here to the Jews is most likely to the religious leaders. I mean, you have to know at this point, they weren't very pleased that Jesus had upset their business. And it's, it's hard to miss the comparison that John makes between the believing response of the disciples and the unbelieving response of the religious leaders. What is interesting about this is that the Jews don't seek to have Jesus arrested. They don't even attack him on moral grounds because they know they don't have a moral leg to stand on. They were complicit in this perversion of worship and they were one of the main culprits for it. It's interesting that they don't ask Jesus, you know, why don't they ask him, why are you doing this? They know they can't ask that question because he would expose them. So instead of attacking Jesus on moral grounds, they go after the issue of authority. What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Remember, we are the religious leaders of Israel. So you need to prove to us that God has given you the authority to upset the dealings of the temple. You have to give us a sign. And then we, as the religious leaders of Israel, will determine if the sign is sufficient for us to accept you and yield our authority to you. See what they're doing here. 
This response is very revealing because it shows us that the religious leaders did not have the same response of faith that the disciples did. When the disciples saw Jesus cleaning out the temple, they thought of truth, they thought of scripture. They thought of King David. What Jesus had just done in the temple was in and itself a sign of who he was. But that wasn't enough for the unbelieving religious leaders. What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And, and for us to believe you, this sign better be a doozy. What a dangerous position that these religious leaders are in. They are making demands of the Messiah. They are making demands of the Son of God. That sign that you just did, we can't even see it, but it certainly wouldn't have been enough for us anyway. This would not be the last time that they would ask Jesus for a sign. They would do this all throughout his ministry. Another occurrence where, that is recorded is where they asked him for a sign right after he had just cast out a demon. So he has authority over demons. Matthew 12, 38, this is what the scribes and Pharisees say to him. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. What did I just do? As if Jesus was some carnival magician, right? Just do tricks for you. No sign was ever good enough for them. And Jesus gave them this response in Matthew 12, 39. An evil an adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The sign Jesus gives them is the sign of his death and resurrection. Very interesting. He's about to do the same thing in John 2. In the case of Matthew 12, this is later in Jesus' ministry, and so he includes the, the, the word about Jonah as a sign of judgment to them. You know, it's, it's easy to castigate the religious leaders and say, how could they have been so blind? But are there areas in our life where, where we ask the Lord for signs? You sometimes demand that God prove something to you before you will move forward in faith. Is the word of God enough for you to obey him and to trust him? Or do you, or do you demand more from God? You've you got to put something in the sky or something for me to believe you. Maybe you're a skeptic, right? Maybe you're one of those people who, you know, you, if I had been there at that time and I saw the miracles, maybe then I'd believe. Or maybe you would demand, maybe you do demand God do something miraculous before you'll believe. You've got to prove it to me, God. Now, we know what the Lord says, right? If you won't believe the word of God, then you won't even believe if someone is raised risen from the dead. When these religious leaders ask for a sign after Jesus had just performed one, all they are doing is exposing the unbelief in their hearts. Those who are blind spiritually because of their unbelief are incapable of, all, of understanding any grander spiritual truth. People who are spiritually blind are always thinking on earthly terms. The Jewish religious leaders, remember this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry and they're already stumbling over the stumbling block. That's why they demanded a sign from him. But in response, Jesus does give them a sign. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. This is not the sign they were looking for. But this is the ultimate sign, right? This is the sign of signs. Jesus talks about his death and resurrection. You know, they were asking about his credentials. They were asking, what authority do you have to do these things? In this statement, though, Jesus tells them that he has the full authority, the ultimate authority for doing what he just did. Think about it, right? All, all these... All these people, including these pretentious religious leaders, they are there at the temple to supposedly worship God. And if you wanted to worship God, you had to worship him at the temple because that was where his presence was. What's even more crazy is that the one that the temple represented was standing right in front of their faces. All the service of the temple was for the purpose of worshiping the Lord. And here he is. Now, I do believe that Jesus was being deliberately vague here. 
Uh, you can imagine that his hands were at his side when he said this, right? He, he doesn't like, want to tip off what he says. He doesn't say, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. I don't think he does that. I also don't think he doesn't say, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up, because that wouldn't make sense, what he's going to say in a little bit, what John's going to say. Jesus doesn't tip off anything. He doesn't want them to see the true significance of what he's doing. Now, if these religious leaders had spiritual ears, maybe this statement would have caused them to perk up a little bit. Maybe they would have asked more questions. But they don't. They jump directly to mockery. Verse 20. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? You're going to destroy this massive building that took 46 years to build and it was still under construction at that time? And you're going to rebuild it all by yourself in three days? Who do you think you are? How ridiculous. This is mockery. This is, and it's blasphemy too, right? They may not realize what they're doing, but they are blaspheming the Son of God to his face. The statement that Jesus says destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. This will linger. The Jews will one day try to use this statement against him at his mock trial near the end of his life. You remember the accusation of one of the witnesses at Jesus' trial? Right? Matthew 26, 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They couldn't find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. It was that accusation that the religious leaders grabbed hold of to press Jesus to tell him who he was. They remembered what he had said three years prior. The Jews will make this statement again and use this statement again to mock him when he's on the cross as well. Matthew 27, 40. They were hurling abuse at him and wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Oh, wickedness. The sad part is, is that they twisted the words of Jesus. Look back at John 2. Look at what he said in verse 19. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. This is more of a, it's a command in, 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 the, in the language, but it's more of a conditional statement. If you destroy this temple, in three days, I'll raise it up. The irony is that Jesus knows exactly what they are going to do to him in the future. The Jews are going to reject him and they will destroy him. And in three days, he will raise himself up. Because death cannot hold our Lord. It's very interesting, too, because in many other places, Scripture records that the Father will raise the Son. In other passages, it is the Spirit who raises the Son. But here, Jesus says, I'm going to raise myself from the dead. The whole Trinity had a part in raising Jesus from the dead. Interesting. But the Jews didn't grasp what he was saying. They didn't think of Scripture like the apostles did. They completely missed the point. Now, if there's any confusion on the part of the reader, John clarifies what Jesus means in verse 20. Excuse me, 21. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. This is pretty incredible. I mean, what Jesus says here in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. In this one statement, he is connecting a true worship of God to himself. You think this physical temple is what's important? No, no, this is a temple made with hands, made with human hands. The real temple is standing right in front of you. Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. D.A. Carson says this, he says, In this temple, the ultimate sacrifice would take place. Within three days of death and burial, Jesus Christ, the true temple, would rise from the dead. If the physical temple represented the presence of God and access to him, then the body of Jesus, to, to carry forward this divine metaphor, you, you could say it that way, represented in a greater way the presence of God. Why? Because Jesus is God. And now access to the Father would go through him. 
This is a profound moment. In the old covenant, God had provided a physical temple that is the place where the Lord would be worshipped. But in the new covenant, worship happens through a person. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. He's the gate. He's the door. This is what Jesus meant when he was speaking to Nathaniel back in John 1, 51. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's very interesting. Jesus is the ladder. He is the bridge connecting, connecting us to the Father. Worship only happens through him. The temple in Jerusalem was always going to be an inadequate means of worship. A physical earthly temple was a gracious thing for the Lord to provide for his people, but it wasn't enough, right? The sacrifices weren't enough because they had to keep offering them year after year. The temple was only in one spot. We'll look at that next week. We needed a better temple. We needed a superior temple. We needed a temple not made with human hands. We needed, we needed Jesus. At the death of our Lord, the veil of the temple, as you guys know, right, torn from top to bottom into. And when Jesus raised himself from the dead three days after his death, he replaced the temple. The resurrection proved that every word that Jesus said was true. And now all true worship comes through Jesus Christ, who is our true temple. It's incredible to think, too, that we as the church, we are also now the temple of God. Because we have been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. Listen to Ephesians 2.20. Ephesians 2.20 says that believers in Jesus Christ, we are God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. Peter says it like this in 1 Peter 2, 5. He says that we are living stones being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. That sounds old covenant language, doesn't it? Christ is our temple. We are united with him and we are being built up as a holy household with him as our cornerstone and through him we worship the Father. One thing we must know, though, that as God's household, as his temple, we must be a holy temple. That's what 1 Corinthians 3 tells us. Because God is holy. We cannot take this truth lightly as, as those who have been bought by his blood. We must be a clean temple as his people. A temple worthy of our Lord through whom we have access to the Father. I think sometimes we forget the cost that required to bring us into the temple of the Lord. Now, we'll delve deeper into this mystery next week in John 4, but, but take a look again at John 2. Look at verse 22. And here John gives one last contrast between the unbelieving Jews and the believing apostles. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. While they were in the temple and they were watching Jesus clean out the temple, they remembered, uh, they, they thought of scripture. But then later on, oh, that's what he meant. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, the light turned on. They grasped what Jesus was, was finally talking about. Right? And we don't know what scriptures they were thinking. Maybe Psalm 1610. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Maybe they thought of Isaiah 53. No, we don't know what they were thinking. But after he was raised from the dead, that the apostle got it. They understood what Jesus said and they believed it. And Jesus is our temple. He's our access to God and he's going to be our temple for all of eternity. Take a look at Revelation 21. Revelation 21, 22. This is in the context of 
the new heavens and the new earth that the Lord's going to create at the end of the age. Revelation 21, 22. It says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. <laughs> when, we are in the, our, when we are in eternity with our Lord, we won't need a temple to worship in. All we're going to need to do is behold our Savior on the throne. If you don't believe in Jesus and, and you're trying to gain access to any other means outside of Christ, you are lost. Because there's only one way to the Father. That's through the true temple who is the Son of God. If you do believe in Jesus, we're called to a clean and pure worship of our Lord. And if there's any impurity in your heart and anything that is defiling you, run to the Lord and, and cry out to him for cleansing and forgiveness. And he has promised that he will forgive and he is faithful to keep his promises. Christ is our access to the Father. He is our temple. Let us be as his people, a pure temple in his sight. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, what an account, what power, what, what, what authority you had and continue to have. Lord, it's, it's hard for us to see the, the rejection of you. At the hands of your own people, you came to your own and they did not receive you. The world was, was stunned by your brilliant light and they recoiled. But Lord, you were so kind to humble yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross for sinners like us. Thank you, Lord, for redeeming us, for sweeping us up in, in this grand plan of redemption, something that we could have never thought of if we had a hundred million lifetimes. We are so thankful. Thank you, Lord, for your son. Thank you for our temple through whom we have access to you. Make us a clean temple in your hands. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.